from the Gospel according to St. Mark. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And so throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, My teacher, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. I remember one of my first classes at Lexington Theological Seminary. I came mid-year. Uh, I was a little too self-assured, or, or, or maybe I was acting self-assured because I felt so nervous and insecure. But in my mind, I'd spent four years in undergraduate double majoring in biblical languages and New Testament. I'd already had a master's degree in church history from another seminary. And, you know, just to be perfectly honest, I would have really annoyed me if I had me in class. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of embarrassing now. I just figured at that point that I knew more than just about everyone else in my classes. That's really arrogant. Now, why did I think I was so much more advanced? That's a good question. Well, in my first class in New Testament introduction, my professor then, Sharon Dowd, wrote Mark 8.14 on the blackboard. And she then proceeded to explain that Mark is one of those books in the New Testament and that the 8 represents the chapter in Mark and the 14 refers to the verse. Well, I couldn't believe it. I mean... I'd known that since I was eating stale graham crackers and drinking watered-down grape Kool-Aid in vacation Bible school. So after class, I went up to her, and, and I said, why did you do that? And she said, well, a number of these students didn't study any of this stuff before. They studied biology or English in college, and seminary is now their first real exposure to the Bible. Of course, I was stunned. I mean, why do you even go to seminary if that's the extent of your biblical knowledge? I mean, I couldn't get beyond that. But I figured that, you know, if that's where my fellow students were, then this degree was going to be a piece of cake. 
Again, in retrospect, I must have been completely insufferable to my classmates. And so shortly thereafter, I was in another class, and we'd broken up into small discussion groups to discuss this reading from uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, I think it was. And I hadn't re read the, the particular book we were supposed to be discussing, but I thought I knew enough about Niebuhr to bluff my way past these Mark 814 students. So I started waxing eloquent about Niebuhr when one guy, who later became one of my best friends, Kevin Phipps, he said, you know, that's not what this is about at all. Did you even read the book? Of course, I just sat there, my face was turning red. And Kevin looked around at everybody else and he just got rolled his eyes. Now, I suspect that that eye-rolling must have gotten to be a familiar reflex for Jesus as the disciples demonstrated time after time that they hadn't really read the assignment and therefore completely misunderstood what the group discussion was supposed to be about. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asks. Now see, I imagine that Jesus had gotten tired of asking that question by this time. This isn't the first time in our text today where Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? Remember, Jesus and the disciples have been on the way for quite some time now. As soon as our passage for today concludes, Jesus will begin to make preparations for his entry into Jerusalem. Our text places us right before Palm Sunday and all the intensity of Holy Week. He finally arrives. They've been on the way all this time, and now... They're just about there. But so how, how did we get this far? That's the question. Well, Jesus and the disciples began moving figuratively, if not immediately geographically, toward Jerusalem with all of its ominous overtones. And Jesus heals a blind man on, all the way back in chapter 8. The only healing in Mark where Jesus has trouble apparently getting it right the first time. I don't know if you remember the story, but Jesus spits in his hands and he puts his hands on the man's eyes and all of the blind man sees after the first attempt are trees walking, according to Mark. And then Jesus puts his hands over the man's eyes again and his sight is restored. Now, directly after this interesting encounter with the blind man in Bethsaida, Jesus and the disciples take off for Caesarea Philippi. And, the text says, on the way he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, on the way, of course, is a means of speaking about this journey to Jerusalem we've been talking about. And so the cross, therefore, is the lens through which Mark wants us to interpret what happens on the way. That the journey to Jerusalem begins with the healing of a blind man and ends with the healing of another blind man, Bartimaeus, isn't accidental. These two sort of rhetorical bookends act as a commentary on the disciples' response to Jesus' prediction of his own death. What do I mean by that? Well, take a look at both ends of this journey to Jerusalem. Back in chapter 8, just prior to the first healing of the blind man in Bethsaida, the disciples have witnessed the feeding of the 4,000, which is the second such miraculous feeding in a very short time. 
the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 takes place just prior in chapter 6. Now, after the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus and the disciples get into a boat, but the disciples had forgotten to bring any bread, which is what Mark 8.14 actually says. Jesus begins speaking about the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And they think Jesus is talking about the fact that they've neglected somehow to bring Twinkies for the boat ride. To which Jesus responds incredulously, why are y'all worried about bread? Didn't you just see what I did with the 5,000 and then the 4,000? We were not just paying attention? How do you not get this? I can get bread when I need bread. But Jesus scolds them about failing to see clearly, failing to understand. Now they land in Bethsaida and some people bring Jesus a blind man, right? Just right like that. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus asks the disciples, do you not yet understand? Which is to say, do you not yet see? And a blind man shuffles onto the scene. Ha ha. And then driving home the real message of the disciples' inveterate point missing, Jesus asks them about, well, all right, so who do people say that I am? Which is followed by Peter's famous confession that Jesus is the Messiah, and it's at that point that Jesus sort of launches into the first passion prediction, which is him talking about being killed and raised again. Now, Peter, if, if you'll recall, he didn't much appreciate, he didn't appreciate this whole Messiah, the, 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 the bad slant that Jesus puts on the Messiah thing. And he rebukes Jesus, telling him that they're going to kill Jesus over Peter's dead body. Right? And in turn, Jesus rebukes Peter, calling him Satan, telling him to get behind me. You remember that? Well, Jesus and Peter both rebuke each other, which is not just a sort of casual verbal slap on the wrists. Indeed, this is the same word that Jesus uses to calm the storm in chapter 4, to exercise a demon in chapter 9. See, what Peter fails to see is of cosmic proportions. Peter's inability to see marks him as blind in this case. Well, next we, we sort of jump ahead to the second half of Mark's rhetorical bookend, the healing of blind Bartimaeus from our text this morning. Now again, Jesus is presented with a blind man. And this, this story about the blind man is in very close proximity to Jesus laying out what it means to be God's Messiah in a violent world. They're, they're right next to each other. And when, when they get up fed up with your politics, he says, this is what Messiahs get. They get, they get killed. Now, a few verses prior to our gospel this, uh, this morning, we find that they were on their road to Jerusalem when Jesus again starts in talking about how they're headed to Jerusalem and Jesus' imminent death. Since they've been on the way, this is the third time Jesus has talked about the fact that he's going to die, right? Well, so how do the disciples respond to Jesus' talk of suffering this time? Well, if you remember... James and John, in as great a display of thickness as is evidenced just about anywhere in Scripture, they break up the discussion about Jesus being sort of uh, 
executed, capital crime, right? They, 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 they interrupt him as he's talking about his impending death only to ask a favor. And Jesus says, well, okay, what do you want me to do for you? Right? And believing that their audience with the Godfather has been granted, they, they start inquiring about the seating arrangements at the royal ball. Now, can't you picture Jesus with his face palms planted in your mind? And he's just outlined the humiliation that he's about to endure, being sentenced to die as a revolutionary, when James and John demonstrate that they're, they're, they don't understand anything he's been saying, that they're totally blind to the genius of the new kingdom that Jesus is talking about. They demonstrate this by asking if they can have box seats at the inauguration. To which Jesus says, of course, you know, box seats to this shindig may not be nearly as comfortable as you might imagine. Then, in another wonderful piece of scripting, Bartimaeus, another blind man, shows up on the scene. On the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, immediately before the triumphal entry, and Jesus pending rendezvous with death, a blind man once again appears and says to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And once again, Jesus says when asked a favor, what do you want me to do for you? Only this time the answer isn't one that betrays the blindness of the speaker. Indeed, Bartimaeus, the, the man who was born blind, finally gives Jesus the right answer, the answer that the disciples who followed Jesus all over the countryside and are now unwittingly about to follow him into the teeth of the storm, this is the answer that they should have given all along. And Bartimaeus says, my teacher, let me see again. Now the disciples, who of all people should be able to see who Jesus is and what the implications for his messiahship entail, are the very last ones to figure out what's going on. I mean, even people who otherwise can't see, people who've never even met him, have more clue about Jesus' identity than these disciples do. In other words, even blind strangers understand reality in the new kingdom better than the fishermen and tax collectors who've signed on to do the heavy lifting. But, I mean, doesn't following Jesus often turn out that way? Like, I'm so often sure where Jesus is headed, so certain of my ability to understand where Jesus is going. My life goes along pretty smoothly. I go to church, wear my face mask where I'm supposed to, bring my old clothes to the goodwill. See, my view of the world is constructed such that I may not always be, like, the hero, but I'm usually on the side of truth and justice. I mean, I may have my little idiosyncrasies, but when it's all said and done, I figure I have a pretty good handle on how this whole reign of God stuff is supposed to play out and what the shape of discipleship is supposed to look like. But, but the question keeps sort of posing itself to me. What if Jesus doesn't share my perspective of the world? <laughs> I mean, what if... What if we were to find out that following Jesus isn't just about reconfirming all the things we already believed anyway? 
about reconfirming our assumptions about what God obviously wants, about getting our individual souls tuned just right. I mean, what if, what if following Jesus entails being given new sight, reordering our understanding of the way the world works so that we finally see one another and the world we inhabit together in the same way that Jesus sees it all? I mean, what if, what if walking down the street with Jesus is completely different from the way we've always imagined our lives unfolding? One of my favorite, one of my favorite preachers of all time, Will Campbell, he once ta he was talking about um, his time as a civil rights leader in the South in the 1950s and 60s. And he told a story about a sit-in one time at a Nashville, Tennessee lunch counter. And he said uh, it was a snowy Sunday morning and afternoon. And, and as soon as these kids would be seated, they'd be turned away, they'd be arrested, taken to jail, and they were filling the jails. And the mob would come in and they'd spit on the kids and pull their hair and try to jerk them off the stools. And he said, there's this elderly woman I, I, I don't know who she was. She'd go up and down the line, and she'd see somebody spit on a girl or jerk her hair, and she'd single them out, and she'd say something like, Now, you look like a nice young man. I bet you have a sweet little sister at home. How would you feel if that was your sister? And the guy generally just sort of didn't know how to answer. And Will said it, it, it was a mob scene. They weren't organized. Individuals harassing civil rights protesters would lose face and would drop out, and then somebody else would take over. I'm convinced that this old woman single-handedly kept the peace, because at one point the police pulled out and just left the kids at the mercy of the mob. And because I was white and I had some contacts at City Hall, I could, by subterfuge, generally find out when the strategy would change. See, one hour... It would be arrest them all as soon as they were seated, arrest them all, put them in a wagon. Well, that didn't work. That didn't scare them because they kept coming, just kept coming, kept coming. And finally, the word was pull all the police out and just lock the doors. That is what happened while this old woman was pretty much single-handedly keeping the peace. Now, this woman down there who was just sort of watching out turned out to be a member of the Methodist Sunday School Board. And she told me, I, I came down here to buy an egg poacher and said, I'm not going to stand there and see these poor little girls treated like that. So I just did what I could do. She, did, she didn't see it as a heroic thing to do. Do you see what I mean? But it's just a little old Methodist Sunday school teacher willing to live like Jesus, and the whole world starts looking like a different place. And power gets just turned on its head. And the people we thought were running the show, we finally see their weakness for what it is. Being forced to give ground to a little Methodist woman with just enough love and Jesus in her heart to turn the whole world upside down. See, when Jesus heals our vision, the world is a completely different place than we thought it was. I mean, it's so easy to think that I got this Jesus thing pretty much figured out. Easy to think that I got a pretty good vision of how Jesus works, how the world is constructed. I know the score. 
And so when Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? I'm pretty sure I know how to respond. Well, this or that, I think, is what will probably enable me to follow Jesus better on the way. A little tuck here, a little pinch there, and, and I'll be good as new. I don't, I don't need much. I mean, already in pretty good shape, right? But, but what if Jesus' vision of what I need is different from my own? I mean, what if Jesus sees a completely different road from the one I've been trained to expect? I mean, what if following Jesus is being given eyes to see that what formerly looked like failure is precisely the same path down which I am called to trod myself? And that's a tough one because we, 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 we typically don't understand the world that way. We know what success is supposed to look like. But Jesus seems to be calling us down a different path. Now, we here at Douglas Boulevard Christian Church talk a lot about justice. What does justice look like? How can we aid in its establishment in the community, in the world? And, you know, if we're going to be honest here, I, I, I have to admit that justice has too often seemed to me like something to check off the list in the course of following Jesus. Spoke out for the poor, check. Uh, denounced the inequities of race, check. Said a word on behalf of those discriminated because of sexual orientation, gender expression, immigration status, houselessness, check. But I'm wondering if that whole following Jesus thing doesn't require more from us, more from me than just that. I'd like to tell you that I, I, I got it all figured out. <laughs> but I hope in the past 30 years since I've been in that seminary class that I figured a few things out. I've gotten a little more humility. But the fact is, I'm praying for vision myself. I mean, my understandings of the world need a radical reorientation as well. They just do. According to Mark, when Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? What we need to ask for is, my teacher, let me see again. Because one true glimpse through the eyes of Jesus can change the world. And the world is counting on it. Amen. <laughs>